0: All right, let me have y'all's attention. Can you hear me in the back if I, if I just do this right here? Okay. Uh, in an effort to do something that I'm not known for doing, I'm gonna, we're going to start ahead of schedule. According to my phone, it is 659, and we're going to get going. Um, I recognize that, and some people have already mentioned that they may have to leave at different times, and I appreciate that because in a topic like this, you never know if somebody's leaving because they're just disgusted, hurt, or whatever. But seriously, if you need to get out and leave, um, that is totally fine, and uh, we are expecting that, so feel comfortable enough to do that. Um, but if you didn't get a handout, um, please raise your hand, we'll have somebody take, grab one, there we go, Steve has them, and then there's more up here. Does anybody else need some? We'll put some over here on this side of the room. There we go. There we go. You guys got two. Um, <laughs> For those that I haven't had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Ryan Moore, and I'm the new assistant pastor here. And as I was thinking about leading off with introducing myself, I thought this church is risking a lot (laughs) to have a new guy come in and talk about this. So I appreciate that there's a lot of uh, trust here that I'm I'm very thankful for uh, to be able to come in and talk about this. And um, that leads into a couple of things that I want to begin with. I'm no expert on this topic. I don't have degrees in this topic. I am just a pastor. So um, that's important for me to get out. The other thing that's important about this is I don't have any personal experience with homosexuality. Um, I don't I don't experience same-sex attraction or anything like that. And that's important because as you begin to think about the questions that you might have with, with regards to your friends or even yourself personally, you need to know this is a safe place to come and talk to, but I, I don't have that kind of experience, which um, may or may not be okay with you. So I want to first put that out there. But I think my interest in this topic, as some people have kind of um, inquired over the past four or five years, has probably been... The same as your interest in this topic, what are we to do about this? If we are Christians and we have a Bible that says X, y, and Z about this issue and we live in a culture that says A, B, and C about it, um, how are we to live? How are we to understand how to engage? How are we to understand um, you know what, what is okay and not okay with regard to how we process not just homosexuality but even our own sexuality, which um, is really it becomes the bigger part of this conversation as well. And uh, my aim for you all is to, to move in that direction um, so that it, this isn't just a seminar for those who either uh, experience same-sex attraction, which we'll get to that in a second, or have uh, family members who do. But this is for those who are heterosexual, homosexual, and all. I think you'll find something uh, from this that uh, will hopefully, hopefully, draw your attention to uh, the scriptures in a, in, a, in a new and fresh way, but more importantly, shed light on who Jesus Christ is. So for the record, this is absolutely a biblical approach to homosexuality. And so I'm, I'm assuming, not assuming, that everybody in here comes from that disposition. Uh, so let me just say that that there's nothing that I'm trying to hide and bait and switch here. Um, I'm absolutely coming from the scriptures point of view from that. And, and maybe you assume that since you're in a church right now, but um, that's just something that I'm not assuming. So, um, you know, along with um, some of the things that, uh, you know, I, the interest in this topic, I think there are, there are topics that, that, that come along throughout church history that have really pushed the church into places that force it to really figure out what it is that, that they believe about uh, the doctrines of faith. And a lot of times those topics, as you look throughout church history, help us get to the basics of what we believed in the first place. And I really think this topic, um, homosexuality, gender, all that stuff, is, is that for our generation. I don't think it's going away, but I also don't think there's a topic that has helped me personally, and I hope this is the same for you, really come to terms with what it is you believe and really come to terms with, with, with even your biases towards certain sins, certain sins that you have of, of your own, but certain sins that you project upon society and begin to see the free gift of grace and a whole new entire light. Um, that is what this topic has done for me and I hope that you experience the same thing so as we move throughout here I just want to echo those things Um, the other thing is this I have to pick an audience to speak to and my audience is the church Um, I think that I'm coming from a position of one that is wondering where is the church on this topic and where has the church been on this topic and so there's a lot of generalities here I'm not saying that all churches, and I'm not necessarily specifically speaking towards Fort Worth Presbyterian Church, but I'm not saying that all churches have been out to lunch on this. But for some reason, we seem to be a little bit behind the eight ball, if you will, um, in the past several years on addressing this. And so some of my curiosity is, is why. Why at the age 35 have I never heard a sermon on, on homosexuality? And as a pastor, I get why I probably haven't heard that. But at least some type of lesson or seminar or something, and then that can be really be mushroomed out into the topic of sexuality in general. Why are we so quiet on these things uh, when it when it holds such a predominant uh, uh, hold? When there is such a predominant hold in our culture and society, um, if there was a place that I would want to have at least a voice coming into the world. I'd want it to be coming from the pulpit and from the church. And so part of the interest in this and part of picking the audience as the church is is because I've got to pick somebody to talk to. And my hope is that as the church, if you want to identify with the church, that we begin to figure out what it is we're going to do and how we're going to engage and respond to um, this topic in general. Last but not least, uh, just encourage you all, as always, to sort of hear the the conversation through. In a room this size, and just for the record, I've been on the college campus, so I'm just used to talking to 18 to 22-year-olds. So um, please forgive me for that, first of all, because I don't know. I'm trying to adjust uh, who my my audience is. But coming into this room, I am positive, absolutely positive, that that a room this size and people of of, of just this um, mix have family members who either have come out as being gay or having same-sex attraction or gender change or whatever it is, I know that there are people in this room who are experiencing that themselves and haven't told anybody. I know that there's there are people in this room who are um, hurt because of their close friends and family who have been either rejected or burned by the church. All of us are coming from different places, and the reason I say that is... I know that, that, that there, there's going to be something that's said here at some point in time that you're either going to disagree with or that is just going to hurt you because it's striking a chord in, in, in this overall story of, of your life, of what you're dealing with. And so if you need to leave at any time for that reason, just to gather yourself, please feel free to do that. It is not going to be uh, anything that I'm going to be upset about or whatever. But, but having said that, I do ask that you listen all the way through um, kind of hear the story out, so to speak, um, because I hope to leave a lot of time for Q&A, which has always been the most fun part of this <laughs> seminar. But I do want this to be a, a both, both, you know, uh, two-way street here, so to speak. I want this to be a, a place where y'all can ask whatever it is you want to ask. Um, I don't promise to have any solutions. Um, I'm wrestling with this still in many ways. And I think also for a, a lot of the questions that, I, that usually get asked you know we are improvising i mean there's there 's no book here that's saying, "Do a B and C in this situation, and we 'll get some of the examples in a second so don't don't don 't think that I have all the answers and, and i 'm not assuming that you have all the answers either, but um, just uh, a little bit about hearing the conversation through so okay um, i'm adjusting this a little bit for our audience, but i don 't think I have to convince you that this is a Somewhat of a hot topic or an interesting topic. I'm overwhelmed by the amount of people there in this room who uh, decided to come out, tornadoes and all, to hear about this. And um, but I think one thing that, that that's interesting is how, at this point in the game, how this conversation, how the story of homosexuality and all things LGBTQ+, which which is really just you know the, the gamut there of of how we uh, identify sexually. Um, has been framed. And I want to give us a couple places to sort of get us on the same page here. One of the ways that, that this has been framed, predominantly in our culture today, whether through the news outlets or on uh, TV and things like that, is really addressing the polars of this conversation. Okay? And so, what I mean by polars, um, you know, on one side, you have the Westboro Baptist crowd, which is, you know, going around to every single place holding up signs that say, God hates fags. Okay? So, that's going to be a side of this conversation that seems to be getting a lot of uh, play, a lot of you know, fee time, and, and really, in many ways, becomes the, the stereotype for what Christians believe about this. The other side of this, though, is the sort of the, the, the love the one you're with side love wins out, um, uh, gay is okay, um, all those kinds of uh, you know, sides of arguments that you know, really are about pinning these two sides together. Okay, Uh, Just just some examples, uh, because uh, as it turns out, these these stereotypes, although they're they're on the polar sides of it here, they're not too far off. And here's an example that I I read this every seminar and I can't believe it every time I read it. But this is a transcript from the pulpit from um, uh, where are my there? It is Pastor Sean Harris um, from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, you can get this on YouTube. He says this. He says, this is with regard to homosexuality. Dads, the second you see your son dropping the, the limp wrist, you walk over and you crack that wrist. Man up. Give him a good punch, okay? You were made by God to be a male, and you're going to be a male. And when your daughter starts acting too butch, you rein her in, and you say, oh, no, no, sweetheart. You can, you can play sports. Play them. Play them to the glory of God. But sometimes you're going to act like a girl, and you're going to walk like a girl, and you're going to talk like a girl, and you're going to smell like a girl. And that means you're going to be beautiful, you're going to be attractive, and you're going to dress yourself up. Um, that's from the pulpit. And it, it doesn't get any easier for me personally to read that. Um, I'm just going to confess that. But that, that is a reality. And there's a reason why there's a stereotype and why there's even this idea that this is the only response that the church has. Going back to the other side, some of you might have uh, interacted with a guy named Matthew Vines who has uh, basically, I think he took about three years after a year in Harvard to sort of study three or four biblical texts and of course came up with um, a a reason why God would be accepting of a monogamous same-sex relationship. And he wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian, and here's his, here's his side of it. And he really, really gives a good punch to the emotional aspect of this, which we'll get into. Um, but basically, you know, how could God say no to this? And this is just a, a quote from one of the chapters in his books. He says, no other teaching that Christians widely continue to embrace has caused anything like the torment, destruction, and alienation from God that the church's rejection of same-sex relationships has caused. If we tell people that their every desire for intimate sexual bonding is shameful and disordered, we encourage them to hate a core part of who they were created to be. And if we reject the desires of gay Christians to express their sexuality within a lifelong covenant, we separate them from our covenantal God and we tarnish their ability to bear his image. In other words, what, what, what people like Vines are doing are appealing to but it's really the true source of your authority, which isn 't the Bible, although they would say that, that they think that they are saying that, but it's really your happiness it 's those desires that is the authority here that we 're going after. But I offer that too It's just sort of another side of that conversation that really gets pinned against God hates fags, and if you 're like me, which one probably sounds a little bit more i don 't know okay. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and so why do I, why do I start here? I start here because one of the people that I want you to begin thinking about this evening and for the, hopefully the rest of your life are, 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 the silent majority, as Mark Yarhouse calls in the sexual minority of people who have a same sex attraction or even an orientation. And we'll find that here in a second, but do not want to adopt a gay lifestyle Statistically speaking, over and over and over again, this is the majority of the people that we would consider would fall under the LGBTQA plus, it keeps going, umbrella. But nobody is talking about those people because we're so glued to these polars. And as a pastor in a church, that concerns me because with just my limited time of being in ministry, <laughs> these people are out there. And there are probably people in this room who haven't told a soul, because if you're in the church and you're figuring out at a certain age, hey, I'm not attracted to the same people my friends are. And you've got some guy at the pulpit saying, well, you just need to get a punch. (laughs) What are you going to do? And so there's this isolation, right? There's this, there's this alienation. There's this, there's no place for, for anybody to come in and explore this. And so then we're left with what? We're left with anything else that we put our eyes and ears to to sort of tell us, how do I understand myself? So we turn on the TV, and we love Modern Family because it's hysterical. But Modern Family is what? It is, it, it is a show that is trying to normalize homosexuality, to say that this is okay. And if, and if somebody's not willing to come to my office and talk about, talk about this, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm something special, but if that door's not open... And they don't feel the place that they can go talk about this to their parents, that's eh, not always the case, then who they're left to talk about this with, you know, they're going to hear it from somebody. And so maybe I'm appealing to the church to say, look, we have a huge opportunity here to really go after some people in ways that I think we're completely neglecting because of our fears about this, our, our, our not really understanding what it is. How, am I condoning this, this, this whole thing if I just engage and talk about it? What do I say? And then there, you know, there, the list goes on. Um, but th- this, is um, th- this is the people group that I want you to think about. You know, if you, if anybody in here is, watching, we'll talk about Glee here in a second, but it's a little bit of a dated illustration. But you know, Glee. Does uh, anybody not? I mean, I should, everybody knows what Glee is, right? No. <laughs> <sighs> gotta get gotta get my illustration base. <laughs> okay, Glee came out, I guess, about seven years ago. I think it's still going, but it was this really cool show. And we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll share an example of it here later, so it will be good that i talk about it now. Um, that basically was all about musical drama and entertainment. It was a musical TV show in, in a high school setting. And it was awesome. Great talent. They'd go through these themes with music and all this kind of stuff. And Aiden and I used to watch it. We loved it. And then, like, by the second season, there was a clear agenda here because everybody was becoming gay. You know, everybody, everybody was turning out to be gay. And, and and then finally, as, as that kind of the cover was blown or whatever, I mean, it was just clear that this is, you know, as the actors were going around doing different movements, it was, this was their pull point of the show, one of the points of the shows, was to get this message out that this is okay in all these different formats. And so one of the main leaders in that TV show is a guy named Kirk from Glee. And those that watch the show know that that is, for, for a generation, that, that is somebody's vision of what homosexuality is. The freedom and the ability to just sort of look at my dad and say, you know, you never loved me, and this is who I am. You know, that sort of uh, rogue-esque type of, this is, you know, trying to, t- t- I, w- I want you to accept me for who I am. For other people in other generations, it's Elton John. For other people in other generations, I don't, I don't, you, you pick and choose. But we all have a stereotype of what we think about when we think about who you know, what homosexuality is and who it is. I just want you to get rid of those for this evening. I want you to think about the person to your left and to your right. Don't take that too far, but just think about the normal person <laughs> that is sitting in your classroom, probably somewhere in your workspace, maybe even in your kitchen, okay? And to um, begin trying to change the lens there, if you will, of what this is for you, all right? So so that's kind of one side of it. But I think, as I think about this five or six years later, um, you know, as I think about where our culture is going with this conversation there's there's another example here that i think is actually taking center stage that we're going to address as well and that's the plausibility of living a life celibate all right what i mean by that is um you know if this is what the church's teachings are and this is what we're asking people to do the majority of the culture non-christian and christian is looking at that today and saying look the bible might be right the bible this might be what the bible says and we're going to get to that in a second But I just don't see how we can ask people to live a life without sexual relationships. I don't see how we can ask people to give up a relationship they're in already where they experience that joy and experience happiness and tell them that they have to go without that. That's plausibility. Is that that even possible? And I think that is more of a convincing truth and factor for people today, way beyond what the Scripture says. And so what that means for the church is, (laughs) and we're going to get to this, is we have to do a better job of showing that it is possible. Which means that we have to start interacting and engaging in ways that maybe we haven't been. And that's another um, item on the agenda for tonight, of how do we begin to be the church family, as the Bible calls us to be, as Jesus calls us to be, that maybe the church has been neglecting for a long, long time. Okay? All right. So... um, Those are a couple of the places that I'm coming from and some of the scenarios that we'll weigh into tonight. Um, All of this, all of this has one thing and one thing only that I want you to walk away with that I think is the most important thing concerning any conversation about sexuality, whether it's homosexuality or gender, and that is identity, identity, okay? Um, What we are experiencing today, most psychiatrists would, would say, and theologians, is that we are we are in a culture that is for the first time ever in recorded history building its identity upon its sexuality I know it 's a mouthful and we 'll explain that, but as Christians, the whole idea of becoming a Christian, if you want to get down to it, is what it 's a change of identity it's, it is a it is, there is, it's a union it is um, it is being connected to Jesus because he has paid for us has bought us, and now we have. Uh, we are given a new identity under him. And, and so that's a little bit of what I mean by identity. And so as Christians, we understand identity a little bit because we, we, we allow Jesus to come in and, and be king and reign over us. Um, what's happening more and more today, what's becoming more acceptable is that what, what tells me who I am is my sexuality. Because for us, our heart's desires are really what, what, what channel our identity. What, what my heart longs for the most, that's who I am. You see that? all over the place. And so there's, there's, a, there's an ability to contrast messages here that I hope that you begin to see throughout tonight, where it's not that I want to get into a discussion with somebody and say, you know, <clears throat> that's trying to be, trying to change my language here. Um, you know, you, you have to change. You, you have to change who you are. Um, the Bible says that. You can't live like this. What, what, what I have to begin doing is begin persuading people um, that, that, that the way that Jesus calls us to live and it, it is the best and fullest way to live life. That's what the argument has to be. Because you know where, you know why? Because that's the argument that you're facing individually on any given level of your sexuality, of your psychology, so, everything. Is that, that there's a battle between you. We're, we're off the grid here on sexuality at this point. There's a battle between you and your heart every single day that is trusting, do I do this? Do I look at this? Do I eat this? Do I drink this? Or do I trust that saying no to that because Jesus calls me to something different is the best and fullest way to live life? That's the parallel here. Okay? Enough about introductions. Um, Why don't we pray, and then we will get to the meat of this. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this night, and we pray that you would... um, Be here with us as we talk about something that's personal to all of us in many ways. Um, But that's also um, challenging for us. And um, I pray that you would give us your eyes to see and your ears to hear through your spirit. And that we would um, become people who care about homosexual people, same-sex attraction people, heterosexual people, uh, the way that you do. And so would you be pleased to do that tonight? Uh, would you guide our conversation uh, tonight as well? We pray this in your son's name, Amen. Okay, so before we go any further, I think as you look at your agenda there or your your handout, let's let's define our terms. Um, a while back, uh, there's a uh, there was a episode of Fresh Air, which comes on NPR. If any of y'all listen to NPR, um, and a guy named Dustin Lance Black was uh, the the guest that they were talking about, and at the time, Dustin Lance Black is an author, and he had authored a book on J. Edgar Hoover. And if you saw the movie J. Edgar, well, the screenplay was came from his book. And one of the reasons that this, uh, the host was having Dustin Lance Black on was because um, Dustin Lance Black, who also is a professing homosexual, uh, came to a lot of interesting conclusions about what homosexuality was in the 40s and 50s versus what it is today. Why? Well, the people in the room who actually know who J. Edgar Hoover is probably can guess. There seems to be a lot of question as whether or not he was a homosexual, and Jagger Hoover was the guy who created the FBI. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it never really came out the way that maybe it would today. But he was always seen with his friend, and they would do lunches together and this kind of thing. But nobody ever considered him to be gay, and it was just interesting to Dustin Lance Black that he did all this research on him. That really in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and just to kind of put a time block there, homosexuality was one and one thing only. It was the, the sexual act itself. It was the behavior. There wasn't this understanding that, that this was, as what we look at it today, a lifestyle. okay? And, and I think that's a good starting place for us to understand as, as Christians or heterosexuals or whatever it is we want to call ourselves, that um, the, the, the terms are so, so important um, and that, that for many of us, we come from a place where this is what homosexuality is, and it's only this. And what Ed Welch, who's a, a psychologist, would want to say is that homosexuality is not something that moderns do. It is who they are. It is who they are. And so that's helpful in many ways for me, because as I start to understand why this is such a personal and aggressive topic for people, I have to understand that what, what they feel they're being attacked against is their own personal, personal identity and, and self. Okay, But um, I thought that was very wise. It's, it's not what they do, it's who they are. And so here are the terms. And this comes from a book that I would totally recommend by Mark Yarhouse, Homosexuality and the Christian. i kind of a guru statistically on all this stuff, uh, homosexuality. But he, get, he offers three terms that are on the board here. There's same-sex attraction is the first one. And those are on your handout. There's, there's homosexual orientation. And then there's homosexual identity. And the way he defines the attraction, same-sex attraction, homosexual attraction, is, is this. He says, using this term is the most descriptive people can be to talk about their feelings. And being descriptive, this is the part of themselves that they can't control. This says nothing about their behavior or identity. It just describes feelings, okay? And so, somebody who has an attraction to, like a Wesley Hill, if you've read Wesley Hill, which is another book I'd recommend, or Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Sam Alberry, these guys, uh, never known a day that they've been attracted to the opposite sex. They just have attraction to the same sex, okay? Um, but it's just that. It's attraction. It's certainly a lot more than that, but it's nothing less, okay? And if you want to get kind of just, you know, maybe there's like a anywhere from an 80% attraction to... Um, opposite sex and 20% ch- attraction to the same sex and then kind of goes from there, all right? But you can't, one of the things we're going to learn here, you can't sort of define attraction here, all right? Um, so that's attraction. An orientation is the same thing as attraction, but it's just stronger and more durable. This person here who has a homosexual or a same-sex orientation is somebody who has feelings or is attracted to the, uh, the same sex, and that's about it. And and those feelings um, are persistent and durable. Uh, they don't come and go in season. They don't come and go based on certain, you know, fill in the blank. They're just they're there. But the point that Yarhouse makes is that these two categories, again, are descriptive. They are they say nothing about identity, and they say absolutely say, say nothing about behavior and nothing about what somebody is choosing to do. And that's why the third category is so important, and that is an identity. Um, The way he defines this is, this is the most prescriptive of the three. It is a sociocultural label that people must use to describe themselves in our culture. He goes on to talk about, in history, only contemporary Western culture has used the self-defining gay attribution, even though homosexual behavior has been practiced in other cultures since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Yarhouse says, talking about a gay identity is part of a modern contemporary movement. When people take on this label, they move beyond describing their experience and instead are forming their identity. In other words, this is what people are choosing. To align themselves with this people group and this identity, and this is who they are, according to Mark Yarhouse. I'll offer those terms for a couple of different reasons. One, I think for people that are outside of the homosexual world, don't really know much about it, it's helpful to begin saying that not everyone who has same-sex attraction identifies as a homosexual. Not everybody who has same-sex attraction has experienced same-sex behavior with somebody else. Crucial, crucial distinction that I think the church is missing out on. Not you guys, but just other people. <laughs> and I also think this is important because if we want to throw around a term like homophobic Christian, which I don't have really any patience for that, but um, some people you know, hear that or use that or it's been used against them, um, I, just, I think this is the place where we're just sort of not sure what to do with what somebody, when somebody means, what they mean by it when they say that they are gay. And th- these terms are extremely helpful, at least for outsiders, to begin understanding and actually begin engaging. That's why I give you this. To begin dialoguing with people when they come to you and say, I'm gay. So some of you all who are in college or going to college or been to college, it's always that soft or that junior year when your roommate comes out, so get ready for that. You now have the ability to not just sort of like freak, to start talking about these descriptors. Okay, how strong is that attraction for you? How long have you been attracted to the same sex? Right? I mean, if you're a heterosexual in this room... Don't you like it when people talk to you about your relationships, or, or at least at one point in time in your life, you know, um, and, and I say all this to help us kind of turn the table a little bit and sort of become a little bit less guarded as we engage a homosexual crowd, because here's what y'all are thinking right now, how do I do that without condoning this behavior, activity, or whatever, and just for right now, I just want to say this, please put that card down for a second please just sort of rest and stop worrying about condoning some type of activity or offering some type of disclaimer if you are in the process of talking with somebody or around somebody or engaging with somebody who either would identify as a homosexual or have attraction or orientation. Um, just because you ask somebody how, how strong that attraction is, just because you begin to engage them, doesn't mean that, you th- that you're saying that this is okay. And here's the other thing about this. (laughs) Homosexual people are pretty dialed into who is and who isn't. And if they've come and talked to you in the first place, chances are they know already that you're a Christian and what you believe, but at least they've sent some type of, okay, I could probably tell this person and they wouldn't flip out on me, okay? And I think that's an important first step for the church as well, just to begin to sort of, let's calm down on the, I need to disclaim all this and get all this out first and foremost. Do we do that with our heterosexual friends? You go to coffee with somebody who's heterosexual, you sit down with them and say, look, before you before we sit down, I need to disclaim that I think pornography is bad. I think cussing is bad. I think getting drunk is bad. No, why not? Yeah, I, I guess. Why do we feel the need to do that around homosexual people, though? I, it's a general, general statement. But one of the things that's going to be so helpful for the church is to begin, and this is, has to do with our biases towards the sin is to begin thinking about it in terms of, okay, this is hard, but I'm going to ask questions to a homosexual person the same way I'm asking ask questions to a heterosexual person. Okay? Right. There will be time, there will be time to get to all of those types of, here's what I think the Bible says, Here, here's what I think, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's, it's um, really, well, maybe I'm, I'm wrong about this, but it seems that, that homosexuality is really, a variant, a, a variance of heterosexual lasciviousness, and, and you know, which I think most guys, at least, could can relate to that much more than maybe homosexual. But if you see it as just an extension of the same thing that most of us struggle with anyway. Yeah, you, well, you're jumping way ahead for me, but I appreciate that. that no, point. you're late. I'm trying to go baby steps here. Well, I mean, I'm just... I feel like the reason we don't ask this question is because it's not so wrapped up in their identity. You know, I mean, I've had many people who struggle with pornography, but they don't define themselves as pornographers. And that, that defines so much of who they are. But my family member who is homosexual, that's issue. Sure. You know, so I, it's just... And, and well, that, that's why that's a little... Different. Yeah, in that situation, I would completely agree with you. Like, When, when there's definitely this sort of... I planted the flag. Okay? Um, the thing that I'm trying to highlight a little bit here is even though I may not have planted the flag of fill in the blank, there's a heterosexual brokenness that needs to be recognized and identified too. Um, that helps me sort of disarm. Okay. Original sin is real. we gonna get to that. Um, and, uh, let me just talk to this person instead of like trying to figure out if I'm going to say something that's going to cause the kingdom of God to begin to implode. <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's kind of where we, we sometimes go, but that's a good point, And i
1: Right, right. Because
0: I'm not shutting it down right now. No. About that. I think people, yeah, and, and I'm not trying to even say that we shouldn't be, but I'm just giving us a little bit of freedom to kind of take a breath here. But thanks. for That's a good point. Okay? So um, <clears throat> where are we? Identity, identity, identity. Um, this is where we want to be spending our time. This is where we want to be engaging people. Um, Not only does it give us a starting point to engage our friends and family, but it gives those who struggle in this way, if we want to care about people, uh, a category to put themselves in to help them understand themselves better. When I say care, I know that sort of throws a red flag. We're going to define care, but we're talking about offering a place where we can at least come to the table and have people talk to us, which is important. but I also believe that this shows and illustrates what the biblical texts are saying and not saying. And this is where we're going to go to next. So to get there, let me ask this question. It's a rhetorical question, so please don't answer out loud. Is it a sin to have same-sex attraction or even a homosexual orientation, as your house has described these terms? Think about that for a second. Is it a sin to have a same-sex attraction or even a homosexual orientation? And to answer that, help you answer that question, I'm going to ask you another question. Is it sinful to be an alcoholic? And the answer to that is, well, it depends, right? It depends. There are people who are alcoholics, but they're 20 years sober, and Jesus is extremely pleased with them, aren't they? And so when we begin to figure out what is sin, what the, what the Bible is saying, what it's not saying, Bible, the Bible is never, in, in the major biblical texts that talk about homosexuality, talking about attraction and even orientation. Because the Bible believes its own theology Like right? the fall messed everything up And for the Bible there is, there is no surprise That as a heterosexual comes into the world With an orientation towards fill in the blank Pornography, X, Y, and Z, whatever it is There are going to be people who come into this world With an orientation towards the same sex What the Bible is, is definitely saying And it's Hebrew and all that stuff We can go around and around with that is that behavior is the abomination. And I'm, I'm saying this like this because five years ago when I started reading this, my mouth dropped wide open. Did not want to believe that. Never did, but never considered that. Because, for a number of reasons, but I want to put this whole topic in a box. I want, to, I want to define it. I want to say, this is the problem. All my friends who are gay were abused at one point in time, so that's the reason this happens. And I want you to enter into that with yourself as well that there's a tendency for us to want to make this too simple. And it's not, because sin is never simple. And it's never, ever rational. Okay? So I I say that the biblical texts are always talking about behavior. They're not talking about an orientation or even an attraction. And for those in this room that might be experiencing that right now, or for those who have family members that might be experiencing that right now, who feel on a daily basis the condemnation and shame that somehow because they're attracted to the same person and they're fighting so hard against that, but that that attraction somehow is what is sending them to hell, which is oftentimes coming from our pulpit, is killing people. And as much as I deal with the guilt and shame of what I think about sexually as a heterosexual, but it's normal because it's the majority, even though I do deal with that shame, it's easier because, well, hey, everybody's looked at it, right? So we have got to really begin to sort of pull back from this, importing our own definitions into the scripture, which, all right, who, has, who gets to say what, what it is? I'm appealing to a lot of scholarship here, and some of this scholarship thinks that homosexual marriages are okay, even though they know that the Bible never ever allows it. Okay? There there isn't really any more argument about what the texts say and they don't say. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the apologetic of this, but if you have questions about the text, we can ask those later. I just think that that is not the place that people really question anymore. But I do want to make this distinction. The Bible is talking about behavior. Just as an alcoholic who's born into this world with an orientation and a disposition for that, if he comes under the authority of Jesus, Jesus is calling that person to sobriety. He's calling me at this point in time in my life to fidelity in a monogamous marriage. And he's calling people with an attraction to the same sex to not engage that. Behavior, behavior, behavior. But when we enter into the, to the text, and I think I'm so glad to see a lot of the young, the young people I can finally say that. I don't know if I can. Here, here's where our problem is. And I'm, I, I am thinking about this. This is probably true for people above 35, but definitely 35 and below. What, what popular culture and what, what, what TV and all this stuff wants to do with Scripture is really sort of hone in on one particular text or book. And for our generation, it seems to be the book of Leviticus. And really just sort of show, okay, here's what the Bible says, but also says this over here. And, and begin to belittle it and begin to show that it's irrelevant and it's not worth anything. Uh, this gets to this wonderful wonderful clip from Glee. Uh, this is 2012. It's not too old, not too dated. But this is a classic example of what you'll hear on TV or what you hear in, in shows or whatever it is um, uh, of, of the process of trying to show you that the Bible is irrelevant. In this episode in 2012, it was a, a Valentine's Day uh, episode, and there's a character named uh, uh, Santana. And, and by this time in the show, she had come out that she's gay, and she was dating her girlfriend at the time of Valentine's Day. Well, of course, in a show like Glee, we've got to include everybody, we have the token Christian group, and it's called the God Squad. And the God Squad, as the token Christians, were going around saying, well, here's what everybody wants for Valentine's Day. They want us to go sing Valentine's to them. And that what you want as Christians is for people to sing Valentine's to you? Of course. So Mercedes... Who is in charge of the, um, the, the God Squad is getting everybody ready for this. Oh, and on this particular episode, we have a special, special guest, and this is the token homeschool boy. That's what he's called, the homeschool kid. This kid is, uh, doesn't wear shoes, doesn't own a TV, his dad sells Bibles out of the back of his car. I'm not making that up. That's the stereotype. And so he has come in, and of course, he's a part of the God Squad. And they're making their way around campus, and Santana and her girlfriend show up, and they want the God Squad to sing them a Valentine's Day telegram. Well, you can imagine all of the sparks that flew. So the whole show goes on with them trying to figure out if they can do this. Can we sing this gay couple, this same-sex couple, a telegram? Enter the, the roundtable discussion of what we're supposed to, to do here. The leader of the God Squad, Mercedes, declared, They say one out of every ten people are gay. And if that's true, that means one of the twelve apostles might have been gay. My guess is Simon, because that name's the gayest. (laughs) One of them, Sam, chimed in, The Bible says that it's it's an abomination for a man to lay with another man. But we shared tents and Cub Scouts and slept next to each other all the time. So that would make Cub Scouts an abomination? Another character said, you know what else is the, uh, the Bible says is abomination? Eating lobster, planting crops in the same field, giving someone a proud look. Not an abomination. Slavery. Jesus never said anything about gay people. That's a fact. And then Sam replies, well, maybe he wanted to, but he didn't want to hurt Simon's feelings. Okay. <laughs> End scene. Uh, the, the episode in, uh, ends with the, the, ho- the homeschool kid was the last one to give his okay for the God squad to sing. The telegram because love he saw the light love won out. Um, anyways, th- that's what I'm talking. That- that's a script, y'all. Okay, so this isn't like boycott Glee. I don't care if you watch. I don't watch anymore because I just it's not about the singing. What's that? Oh, um, Netflix. Um, it's more about recognizing that that so many people are competing for ideology and competing for their script to be heard and um you know they have the tv that's great um but you know we have a script too and it's a lot better than this and we've got to really begin to find that and we've got to begin to um to to hone in on it and and use it but the point of this illustration here as you can easily tell is is they are appealing to an audience that is supposed to be biblically illiterate and guess what? They are nailing it because what is the most of these people are that we're, that we're dealing with here are biblically illiterate. All right. I mean, I went to seminary as I said and, and confessed in Sunday school to read the old Testament uh, for the first time. So, you know, I'm, you guys are probably looking at me a little like, well, what's wrong with this guy, but I'm just, it's okay. Like, like we don't know our Bibles, right? We don't, um, you know, and so this stuff goes out there and not only does this sound, that's a, sounds like a good argument. Yeah, I look from the text. It says planting crops in the same field is an abomination. It's, it says eating lobsters is an abomination. But we were just out at, you know, Captain D's, <laughs> cracking a few. The Bible must not be relevant, must not be trustworthy. It is a simple, easy, easy argument. Now, look, everybody in the room knows, like, this is, this is terrible exegesis. You know, this is, you know, but, well... Um, you know, and then you know, I use that example too to say, go back to that, go back to that 12-year-old who's trying to figure out their own sexuality, doesn't want to go talk to the pastor because <laughs> he's going to get punched, isn't really okay to talk with mom and dad for whatever reason. So I'll just turn on TV, and I'll have Mercedes tell me all I want to know about the Bible and about uh, uh, my homosexuality and about how I should act on that. Um, everybody's competing here. Everybody's competing here. But look, um, the issue that we're dealing with is a hermeneutical one. And I know that's a big word, but it just means how do we understand and read scripture without taking it out of context? And the answer to that is keeping it in context. Kevin Young has a great response to many a bad biblical argument on this topic. Um, and I don't know if I, I might've put it in the bibliography there, but it's called What the Bible Really Still Says About Homosexuality. And uh, you can Google it and look it up. It's, I think it's on the Gospel Coalition. But what's, what's so good about the article is he quotes a couple of scholars, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, for one, who is, uh, who's you know, well respected in his field, but um, is has come out very much against um, the the biblical's anti-gay teaching. Okay, um, but he's come out against it. He's one of the guys that's come out against it. Uh, but he's now willing to say, look, yeah, you can't really make the Bible say something different. It definitely says that homosexual marriages or relationships and those kinds of things is, is against the biblical ethic, um, even though he still says you know, for other reasons that this is okay. But the point being is that both sides are agreeing that the, there's no M- M- ambiguity within the text. Um, nobody uh, is disagreeing with that. But what, what's helpful for us to begin to do briefly here is to talk about the, the hermeneutic of a sexual ethic throughout Scripture that's going to help you um begin to sort of house not just different individual texts within scripture but also understand um really just how do how do we interpret this throughout scripture okay all right so the first thing uh, to that end and you see it there on your handout uh is Genesis 1 and 2 you know first books of the first first chapters a couple chapters of the Bible Genesis 1 and 2 comes out and the Bible uh assumes a natural created order that's put forth in, in Genesis 1 and 2. This is unmistakable. Um, Verse 27, so God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them, called them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Man and woman complete one another in a way that is designed to point to the creator that allows for procreation and oneness. This cannot happen in a homosexual relationship. And Paul will illustrate this later on in the New Testament. But Genesis 2 ends with a marriage. This is last with bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. What is the Bible describing here? The Bible describing heterosexual marriage. And, and, and I would argue that this is a biblical assumption from Genesis Revelation. Okay, I'll jump ahead a little bit. Jesus isn't saying a whole lot about homosexual marriage because Jesus is a good Jew. and He doesn't have to because he understands what Genesis says. He understands what every other biblical text has said. Although in Matthew seventeen sixteen, I mean, he had every opportunity in the world to say that it's okay. And we'll get to that in a second, but he didn't. But Jesus doesn't talk about, you know, rape. He doesn't talk about incest. He doesn't talk about bestiality. Are those things somehow okay? No no so this sort of argument from silence is one that we really have to begin addressing but we have to also in the way that we address it is understanding the hermeneutic here that this is the natural created order set out from genesis and it's carried on throughout the entire old testament and for somebody to have to sort of revisit the question in the new testament would actually be kind of strange it would actually mean that it would have to change sort of like the way food laws change in the new testament and we hear a ton about food laws don't we Sort of like the way that we don't circumcise anymore; we baptize. So things that did get changed are addressed over and over and over. And this is what we mean by hermeneutic—that we're taking the full canon of Scripture and looking at it. Okay, everything comes back to this natural created order, and the way that Christ and the church—and um, you know, which, which are opposites, right—make this union. In the way that male and female are opposites. There's a there's a, a metaphor, a living metaphor going on there within heterosexuality. That, that sets up an order that is crucial to the way that God is trying to communicate his love for his people and his church, okay? to to uh, If you want to read more about that, uh, this is uh, a latest book that this, this of theirs that came out, but God Loves Sex. Who, who wouldn't want to read a book like this? <laughs> Allender and Longman. Anybody in high school going to college, th- get, get this and read this with your parents, or maybe not, just read it by yourself and talk about it with your parents. I'm not there yet. I have young kids, but... I would have loved to have had somebody read that and talk about that with me um, at a young age. Very, very good. Very, very good. Goes through the Song of Songs. But um, so the Bible assumes this pro-gay theology. And my friends in, that are pastors who are, on, you know, whether in the USA church or in, in other liberal denominations, who we've sit down and had conversations about this, they admit that in order for them to get around what they're saying is that they say that male and female in verse 27 is an arbitrary term. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that. And they hone in on looking for a helper that's fit for him or her. That, 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 that really what it's about is companionship. and you know. That but the, the genders are um, are arbitrary. And I offer you that for those of you who are like, how do people get there? What am I missing? Like, that's one of the things you have to do. And for some people, that's easy to do, but that's, that's what you have to do if you want to begin changing and begin believing that the Bible is pro-gay in the ways that we would describe it. The Bible is pro-gay in um, a and, 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 you know, different way that we would talk about. But, um, so yeah, once the fall happens, though, and sin breaks into creation, laws or boundaries, if you will, are put into place to maintain and to celebrate the natural created order. Why? Because according to God, this is the best and fullest way to live life. We'll come back to this, but it's crucial to not lose the conviction as believers that the way that God has called us to live is the best and fullest way to live life. And that sounds like a little bit like uh, I'm, I'm exercising some pride here. How can I tell somebody else that this is the best and fullest way to live life? But why are you a Christian? Like This is absolutely why you're a Christian. I mean, there's the fire insurance thing, right? You get to go to heaven, but to some degree... You think this is the best way to live life, I would hope. At least that's what convinced me about it. I go off in all these other directions, and then I come back, but like, oh, he's right again. You know, and part of what I mean, though, about the best and fullest way to live life is, look, would anybody sit here and talk or say about an alcoholic that the best and the fullest way for that person to live life is drunk out of their mind? Mm-hmm. But that's their desire. Right? That's what they want. No. We would say the best and fullest way for that person to experience life is sober. Okay, so there is a degree of, um, of, of really of authority here that we are exercising, which is why we feel so uncomfortable <coughs> imposing that. But I want to give you all the freedom to say no, 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 no. This is really the best thing we got. This is the best and fullest way to experience joy this side of heaven. And for us to withhold that from people, whether it be on the topic of homosexuality or anything would be to do them a disservice in my mind. But I think this is really interesting, especially as I dealt with this on the college campus because we are so afraid to sort of impose our own belief system on people. I'm not saying you've got to you know judge somebody and sort of tell them they have to believe, but I think that I can become a little persuasive and say, look, hey, I, 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 know, I know what you are experiencing here. I know what you want. I want the same thing, and I look for it here, there, and here. But let me just give you another option. You know where I've found... All those things that I was looking for, I found those things in Jesus. And look, that statement can be about as arbitrary and as um, just, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, forget it. It can just be very abstract. Um, but one of the things that faith is calling us to is to, what, to taste and to see. And so there's an invitation there for that. There's an invitation for people to say, look, I know this sounds crazy. I know you all, everything your your, your desires are wanting is for you know one more Saturday night, but... Try this, if we're up for trying things, right? And tell me what you experience. But it, it comes back to the fact that the biblical mandate from the get-go, God's laws, his beautiful statutes, read Psalm 19, are about restoring joy to our lives because of the brokenness that sin has created in our world. Okay? Um, so, it's a little bit about, about, about that as we, as we enter the biblical worldview. Next, we have uh, the clean and ceremonial laws, uh, Leviticus 18 and 20. Uh, obviously, as we've already talked about, huge, huge texts that people appeal to for homosexuality. I'm not going to spend too much time there and just reiterate. It's about behavior, 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 not attraction, orientation. Um, and so uh, from there, we get all those general bad biblical arguments. Well, if it says one thing here, it says another thing here. How do we know that this is true? We'll just throw it all out. And a question that you should be asking is yes, absolutely there are texts in the Old Testament that we are called not to believe or called not to act upon or called that they've been thrown out. But which ones are they? And how do we know? And this, again, comes all under the heading of a hermeneutic. All right? Um, We say that Jesus came and fulfilled the the three main strands of the law, ceremonial, uh, civil, and uh, moral. And, um, And one of the things that that means is that We take ceremonial, we read about all these sacrifices that are going on in the Old Testament, Leviticus, and those kinds of things. Um, Why don't we do that anymore? Well, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was our once and for all sacrifice. We understand that the things that Leviticus was showing us were really pointing us to a bigger deal. And Tim Keller wrote a brilliant paper about this, saying it would actually be wrong for Christians who believe in Jesus to begin offering sacrifices again. So yes, there are things that we do and we don't do. Civil authority, the Bible was a, was a theocracy, or Israel was a theocracy, right? It was, it was, it was a place that was under the rule of God in a very specific, you know, nation state. Well, that was totally dismantled. And now it's the church and now government is dished out through what? Grace and mercy. Um, it, it's it totally changed. Um, and so there are definitely, there are civil, we don't stone people because they commit adultery. Some people think we should, but we don't because we're in the age of grace and we should all say amen to that, right? We are, Um, but there are real reasons for this. And so we have put down those stones and we have, you know, picked up God's uh, gifts of grace and mercy to offer people and uh, to hopefully draw them back to himself by the beauty of that grace and mercy. But then there's the moral law. Okay. And this is the one that might be asking, okay, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. But aren't we supposed to still honor our father and our mother? That's the moral law. Ten commandments. Um, Aren't we supposed to not commit adultery? Are we allowed to commit adultery? Um, And what's interesting about that is, while, yes, Jesus has fulfilled the moral law, you are still called to be holy because what? God is holy. Because the the law is a picture of God's character. It is right for me not to murder people still. Because that's the worst thing you could do to the image of God. It is right for me to honor my, my mother and my father so that life will go well for me. It is right to, um, to not steal and to not covet and all those things, to, to, to take a Sabbath, to, to not place anything above God himself. Yes, Jesus is my righteousness, and I have no condemnation for when I do fail those things. But we are still called to exercise those things. That's how the law isn't a burden anymore. Jesus tells us his yoke is easy and his burden is light because we now have the freedom to go and explore those things without the condemnation that the law brought in the first place. All right? But this moves down the road a little bit, coming back to our topic of, okay, so how do I know which laws are, you know, should we keep and which ones should we not? And you know, how does Jesus play into all this? This is all getting a little bit confusing. Well, this is why the Old Testament or the New Testament was written. And in one sense, if you want to think about what the New Testament was for, here you have this guy named Jesus that shows up, dies, and resurrects, and now all of a sudden, all the food laws are gone, all the ceremonial laws gone. There's some questions here, right? Some people got some questions. We've been living a certain way for 5,000 years, and some guy shows up, and all of a sudden you're telling me that's gone. That is the context for about half of the New Testament letters. So Paul starts writing. He starts saying, "Well, this is what this means. This is what this means." And, of course, they're asking, how do we then live? How do we behave? And you start getting these lists. And you get them in all of Paul's epistles. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Don't miss that one nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and by the Spirit of our God. And so here are these lists. And we are, we'll kind, of, kind of glance over these at times. But what is he saying? What is he doing? He's still calling his people to go forward with what the moral law was calling us to go forward with to begin with. And if there were some type of way that I could convince people or say to people, yes, homosexuality was okay, it would have to come in the form of Paul never, ever, or not excuse me, not, not addressing it, but actually coming out of, and saying explicitly that it was okay. But he does the opposite. He includes it in every, almost every single one of his epistles. Why? Because the moral law is still good. God's order, His creational order is still good. It still says something about Him when it's done in the right way, specifically between a man and a woman, how they come together for oneness, for purposes of oneness, to to, to show you something about who God really is. And so for us to sort of begin the process of saying, oh, the gender doesn't matter, is to begin to say that, that, that we can actually interchange according to Paul in Ephesians 5, and I know I'm going big, but to interchange Jesus and the church, which is the, which is the parable that he gives us there, and nothing could be more heretical, if you will, when you get when it, when you come to, when it comes down to it, there are real real reasons for his order beyond your personal happiness, beyond procreation. Um, worship is tied to this, and guys, that is something that. I, even as I say that, it is such a huge thing. In all this reading and talking, I keep asking people, what is our sexuality for? And you get little glimpses of it. But can we just, this is, a, this is an enormous topic, and we, we will never plumb the depths of it. All we have to go on, <laughs> thankfully, are the pieces that the Lord gives us to go on in order to send us in a direction to say, look, you're going to get taste and glimpse of what is going to be for you for eternity through your sexual relationship to your spouse, through your singleness in the community that you invest in, that you're just not going to understand at this point in time in your life. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. My happiness is not my authority. Jesus is. And so that's what moved me in the direction of believing not doing what I want to do, not caring about my desires, but trusting that this is the way that he wants me to live. Okay, That's about all I want to say about the biblical text at this point. Again, two points. Natural created order. It's assumed on every page of Scripture, and there are real specific reasons for that. There are some laws in the Old Testament that we don't follow anymore. Jesus is the reason for that. And which laws do we follow? Paul tells us in the New Testament epistles. There you go. Um, obviously, it's a little more than that, but that's a good starting place. <laughs> Uh, Two points. The Bible makes a distinction between homosexual practice and orientation or same-sex attraction. The Bible is no way saying that having an orientation, as we said, towards the same sex is an abomination. What the Bible condemns is the practice of those things. And because the Bible makes a distinction, we should too. We should too. Do not make the mistake of labeling everything homosexual as if it's all an abomination. This is making it too simple, and you're only cutting off the limb of the tree that you're sitting on there. But more importantly, you are condemning people who struggle in this way, in the same way that other people are born with other simple structures who have no control over this in some situations, but who are not practicing. And we're telling those people that there is no hope in the process. And the church is the one place where there is hope. It is the one and only place that there is hope. It's what we have. And so we need to begin making this distinction so that people can begin to en- feel the freedom to engage and ask these questions about their own sexuality. Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ except you if we, begin making this, uh, if we don't begin making this distinction. This is why bringing people to see that it's all about identity is where you really want to be spending your time. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I, don't, I, I wish that I could tell you where homosexuality or even some type of same sex attraction comes from, um, but I can't because nobody can. There is no consensus. Some people say it's nature. Some people say you're born that way. Some people say it's, it's, it's nurture. It's the way that you were raised, okay? The best science that we have, the best fill-in-the-blank, and I would point to Mark Yarhouse on this, is that there isn't one indicator for this. Oftentimes, it's a mixture of both. And yeah, absolutely. There are people who have moved in that direction because they have, they've had, you know, some type of terrible, horrible abuse from a family member. Um, There are some people like these guys here who are telling you, and this was news to me, I don't remember a day when I wasn't attracted to the same sex. So you could tell those people that are citing those things, but it's, it's not only is it missing the point and going nowhere But it is not actually engaging that person biblically as Jesus wants us to engage them, which is with identity. Okay, so you have those feelings. Okay, so you want to drink alcohol till you pass out. Okay, so you want to look at pornography on the screen, right? So you want to be greedy over whatever it is that you want to be greedy over. What are you going to do about it now that you are a Christian? That's identity. And that message, my friends, is way more beautiful and believable and full of joy... any type of condemnation that we put on people to say go fix yourself before you come in here and i'm not saying that's what this church is doing or what you're doing but some places that's what that's what's going on and i hope you feel that uh you know desire to want to make sure that that's not something that's coming out of the church that you're part of um the fall messed up everyone's sexuality the question is is what are you going to do about it and how are you going to live and the answer to those questions depends solely upon one thing, and that is his identity. To finish 1 Corinthians six eighteen to 20, flee from sexual immorality, Paul says. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, and here's the best part, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, because, very next sentence, you are not your own. That's an authority question. You are not your own. You, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. None of us who call ourselves Christians have a say in how we are to live. That whole conversation happened without us being present. Sorry to say. Why? Because we were bought. The precious blood of Jesus purchased us. And so we go from the slavery that our sin would lead us to, to the righteousness that he offers us and the the possibility of joy and certainly the hope of eternity with him down the road. But this is the Jesus that claims you. That's the identity of it all. And so it is for the alcoholic, so it is with the thief, the adulterer, the person who's greedy, and the heterosexual and the homosexual alike. Your fight, my fight, is dying to myself and the identities that my heart wants to claim for its own and believing that who you are is found in Jesus. That's a, that's a get-up-every-day-in-the-morning, 24-7, 365-day fight. That who I am is found in Jesus Christ, that he is pleased with me, Right? He dotes over me, but he actually likes me. He wants to have a beer with me, or a soda for you kids. <laughs> right? Um, so, But that's that believing that God really really thinks about that for us is a huge, huge deal. So anyways, okay, I, I talked a lot about how we, uh, we are exposed to a lot of scripts and uh, both in the media and elsewhere, and I've been kind of saying that what the church needs is a script. And I believe we have found one. And uh, that script is, comes from this book here called "Washed and Waiting. And uh, Wesley Hill is uh, a same-sex attracted Christian, a uh, person who, who is living a celibate life because um, he loves Jesus. And this is, a, this is very much an experiential read. This is his story. So if you read this, there's three sections of it. You've got to get to the third section. Um, you'll throw the book out the window. It's just depressing uh, if you don't get to that third section, okay? Because he takes you to the depths of his hell, which he would say are, you know, everybody has to go there in their own lives for whatever it is that the Lord has brought to them. But for him, it's this orientation. But he brings you out of it in a way that you've never seen the cross before in your life. And I want to share that with you here. So... Um, I can sit up here all day long and talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality and somebody might say of course you can because you're, you're, you're heterosexual you get to get married you have a, a lovely beautiful wife and you have four girls who are great so sure this is easy for you so we need somebody from the other camp to come in and talk to us about this and that's who Wesley Hill is that's um, this, this guy here Sam Alberry the latest that, this, is, this is my new go to Ed Shaw get this book the possibility problem. We'll talk a little bit about that here. He too, he's an Anglican bishop or Anglican priest, but same sex attraction, and believes that uh, the biblical way to live life is 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 not to act on his desires, and it's just remarkable stuff. So here's Wesley Hill's four points. This is the script. This is where I want to leave you all tonight with with where we are going to go forward and how we're going to think about this as as believers. So the first thing that he says is the Christian story. Promises the forgiveness of sins, including homosexual acts, to anyone who will receive it through Jesus' death and resurrection. Forgiveness is something that we just need to hear. Um, some of us need to know that because we rank sins in our own lives and in the lives of others, some people would, would, would set homosexuality at a higher, you know, worse sin than the list that Paul even put it for a numer- number of reasons. But the Bible doesn't do that. And the Bible offers forgiveness for that sin, both orientation and behavior, um, without j- just as much as they would add, give you the forgiveness that you'd want for, for lying. Okay? And I think Hill's, Hill's, Hill's really preaching to himself at this point because it's hard for those people to believe that forgiveness is even possible for the amount of shame that they feel the way that they live life, the way they think about life. And, and so forgiveness is possible there. He says one of the most striking things about the New Testament's teaching on homosexuality is that right on the heels of the passages that condemn homosexual activity, there are without exception resounding affirmations of God's extravagant mercy and redemption. God condemns homosexual behavior and and amazingly, uh, at great cost to himself, lavishes his love on homosexual persons. And that's a true statement. Um, That was hard for me to read when I first read this. And And I couldn't figure out why. And there was just a bias towards this. And I just offer that as uh, a point of transparency. Number two, the message of what God has done through Christ reminds me that all Christians, whatever their sexual orientation, to one degree or another, experience the same frustration I do as God challenges, threatens, endangers, and transforms all our natural desires and affections. In other words, what Hill is, is admitting from the other camp is that all of us are sexually broken. My sin may not be your sin, but I am in the same boat with you. We are all in the same boat together. Your heterosexuality, you don't function as you are called to function as a heterosexual in this room, whether you realize that or not. That's what that means. It is broken, y'all. Just as much in a a very similar way that, that, that Wesley Hill's sexuality is broken. It just looks a little differently. One of the things that this opens up for us, and this is where Ed Shaw is just a little more organized than I am, is that he sort of exposes some, I don't know, I call them myths, um, but certainly some missteps. And I think one of these in particular is this idea that godliness equals heterosexuality. And I have to admit that, you know, at first as I was trying to think through this, I, I, I would think the goal, as I engage my homosexual friends or, or peers or whatever it is, is to get them to become heterosexual people. And I'm just thankful that God didn't bring too many homosexual people into my life at that point in time. But that is a real, that is, that is a real question for people. Um, isn't that what, what, what godliness would look like? Nobody in here goes to hell for their homosexuality. Nobody in here goes to hell for your greed. You go to hell because you do not have faith in Jesus Christ. There will be people in heaven on the day that they die who are who have not repented of their greed. But because they have faith in Jesus Christ, that's what brings them to heaven. Okay, and so while while I certainly would love for somebody to begin to come out of a homosexual attraction, it just doesn't seem like that's going to happen. But the point is, is I'm not trying to make that person heterosexual. I'm trying to make that person a lover of Jesus, such as Wesley Hill who is now pointing more people than I ever possibly could in my broken heterosexuality to Jesus because he's actually suffering for something. More on that later. But that is a huge, huge point, and I think in the, in the, especially in the American evangelical church, that godliness doesn't equal heterosexuality. That is not the goal. And, 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 I, and I appreciate it as it was for me. It's hard for some of us to sort of get our arms around that. I'm not saying that I wouldn't want people to come back to heterosexuality. I'm just saying I want people to fall in love with Jesus, and I want them to move in the direction that Jesus is calling them through the Scriptures. And if they never, like what's the hell, become attracted to somebody in a way that they feel like they can faithfully have a marriage relationship, then I'm, I love the fact that they're like, I would much rather be celibate. Why? Because Jesus says that's more beautiful for me and, and, and better for me to do. I, wow. that That's the goal. Okay. Um, the second myth that, that Ed talks about here, uh, is that if you're, if you're born gay, it must be okay. Kind of the other side of this equation. Everybody's heard that. Um, that's a big narrative today. Look, you know, just born that way. Why would God make you like that? And then tell you not to, you know, there's a little bit of a theological problem there. I would say God made you like he did Adam and Eve. All right. He did not make you sinful in that sense. He made you sinless in the garden, but we chose sin, and now he is working his plan to come through that and to deal with that and to rescue us from that. Okay, so so we sort of split time here a little bit when we say that, why did God, yeah, yeah, God is sovereign over your homosexuality or your orientation. I'm not saying that, but when we want to split, start, start getting theological here, God has made us a certain way, and his laws are calling us back to that, okay? But here's the thing, and this is where I want, to, where I want you to hone in on. I'm a heterosexual, right? I have, uh, you know, I, I was born with a, you know, a hand of cards of sin that I don't like, but I'm drawn to. So can I say that as well? Can I say, look, I just have this desire to go look at pornography. I have this desire to sit and like veg out on Netflix for five days and never take a shower and never take care of myself and just, you know, you know have my wife do all the work around the house. I don't know. Give <laughs> me we, we all have these things, right? And, and so there's, there's a sense where we, when we talk about identity, that, yeah, uh, you know, this argument that you might be born this way, sure, I'm born this way too, but God's calling me away from this. And, again, I'm not condemning you for this. I'm just showing you this is the script. This is what the Christian narrative is about, is that, and that, is that, that this way of living is the best and fullest way to live life. It may not seem that way, especially as our culture uh, weighs heavily our desires and our feelings and our emotions. Um, but, you know, like I said, I'm 35 and every single inclination and every every desire I've acted out on opposite of God's word has never <laughs> delivered. Never delivered. Um, and I, I, I still think it will. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to send when I leave here at some point in time, you know, maybe next week, but some point in time. <laughs> <laughs> but like we all you know, it, we, we are all born with this with, with, with these certain sins and some of us have different ones. Um, but as Hill and as certainly as Ed Shaw is going to talk about those sins, at homo- this point in their lives they would, they would not wish their homosexual, homosexual orientation away. Because surprise, surprise, it is the one thing that has driven them to the foot of, foot of Jesus more than anything else in this world. And so as a Christian, we begin to love and desire that more than we do what we're not getting. <laughs> because we're actually getting what we think we're not getting. We're getting Jesus. We're getting where all of our hopes and longings find, the, find their meaning. Okay, um psalm 51 david's psalm that's a great place to go to if you want to want to look at it for yourself Or look at others about both the idea of original sin. I was born this way sinful from my mother's womb But I also have to take responsibility for my actions. Okay, I mean david says it right there from my mother's womb I I was born into sin and it's like, if that were true, if it was because you were born this way, then you can act that, act that out. Then he should be able to say in the next verse. So therefore, I'm just, you know, I was, I really wanted, I was born to want to commit adultery and murder some people. So I am not going to ask for forgiveness because I was born that way. The Bible holds together two things. The original sin... That we are born into and the responsibility we have over it, and God's call for us to repent and move in faith is is not a call to take the fun away. It's a call to move towards being more human, which our sexuality tells tells you know paints a huge picture of what that really is uh, in the biblical sexual ethic. So so that's 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 the second thing. The third thing under this this sort of number two thing, and probably my favorite, um, is this idea. Well, it's really it's really where the church is kind of. Set, set some of us in the wrong direction. Um, and it's the conversation that we have um, uh, between abstinence versus chastity. When I was growing up, I don't know if they did this anymore, but you know, there was these things called promise rings, and there was this movement about abstinence. You know, I'm going to give you this ring, and you're not going to have sex until you're married. And so you wear this ring, and you, know, you just wait it out. And you know, then you sit in youth group, and you ask your youth director, please, boo in the face. How far is too far? So I got this ring. I can't have sex, but what can I do? Right? That's abstinence. Okay. Great intentions, but it's not creating or, or developing a virtue of holiness, of sexual holiness in my heart. It's making me a Pharisee. What are the laws that I, you know, how far is too far? That's a Pharisee. And then how much self righteousness do I have on my wedding night to think? that I'm sexually pure because I'm a virgin physically. This is not a call to say don't wait kids wait for this. <laughs> but you are kidding yourself to think that your your purity comes from you because you waited out one act. Do you know how many times I've entertained sexual sexual acts before I got married in my brain? And it's sad. And so what I want to do is I want to wear this so that I can look at my dad or my mom and say, I made it. I did it. I'm pure. Be happy. Love me. It's just so backwards. It is so backwards. The only place you find your purity, friends, is through Jesus. And that is for the person who waited till they were married before they had sex. And that is for the person who was you know, just wasn't paid to be a prostitute for the most part, to go into that, you know, you just had a season of life where that's what you did. Both those people find their purity in the same place. It is unbelievable, but beautiful at the same time. And chastity and abstinence are at war. And we need to bring back chastity because it is an old archaic term Catholic term, really, that promotes a sexual holiness, not just till I get married, which is what abstinence did. They said, basically, I don't have to worry about my sexual ethics, you know, because once I get married, all right, you know, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. No, the stakes are higher. You're married now, and hopefully there's kids on the way, and grandkids, like, there's so much more at stake here, and so I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but what Chastity is saying is that Your care and concern for sexual holiness goes until the day you die. Now, what does this have to do with homosexuality? It has everything to do with how we look at homosexuals and say, man, they cannot experience the apex of life. They can't experience the joy of having sex one day like I can. We should probably just let them do what they want to do. Like there's an internal guilt there. Uh, and it's a miss. It's it's a, it's a it's, it's totally it totally misses um, what we should be thinking is look, hey buddy, we are still in the same boat. Your call to be sexually pure is my call to be sexually pure with my wife, with my kids, and everybody else. It just looks a little bit different. Let's do this together. Let's not alienate these things as if somehow, well, man, <laughs> it things for you. I live in a place in a culture and society where I don't have to worry about that anymore because I can have all the sex I want to because I'm a heterosexual and I can get married. Um, nothing could be further from the biblical text, And so, um, I think, I think this is one place where we begin to open our eyes and see where our good intentions have really sort of led us on this path away from sexual, uh, holiness as a virtue for people. And so, you know, oh man, if there ever was a sex talk to be had, let's talk about that. Let's talk about caring for our bodies and caring for the bodies of others, especially throughout the entirety of our lives. Stop worrying about and asking the question of how far is too far. And start caring about what is pleasing to the Lord. That is a much, much better question. This brings us to our third. If I have my notes right. The third one here is the Christian story proclaims that our bodies belong to God and have become members of the corporate communal body of Christ This is yet a third reason scripture and the church's no-to-homosexual practice makes sense. This is Wesley Hill talking. Um, This one made sense to me, but not as much until I read Ed Shaw's book. And what what, what Hill is saying here is is really appealing to history that I think is something that has kind of lost um, in our culture today, which is the church as a family. Um, Contrasted today with the church as a place that this is the place I get my spirituality. This is a place where I do tennis practice. This is a place where I do school, right? In other words, it's it's a consumeristic mindset that a lot of us have with church today. I'll go wherever the best preaching is, but I'll never anchor down and look at other people as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a very, very foreign, foreign way of doing church if you look at the rest of church history, um, which is also why when I sit here and tell people, especially college students, have you ever considered celibacy? that people begin to break down in tears, because we can't imagine what it would be like to live in a culture or, or a community where, where you had affection, and, and dare I say intimacy, with people that were your friends, all right? And this gets to another phrase that I love that Edith Hall uses, we are a culture and society that doesn't believe in intimacy outside of sexual relationship. And until like, you know, like yesterday, I was like, yeah, I, I, that was that too. Um, and, 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 as Eddie and I were talking about this, she was like, you know, I think this is, I think women really get this. And if you read Rosaria Butterfield's account, you know, she talks about lesbianism. Like, it's not a really sexual thing there for them. It's about communi- companionship, and it's about, uh, dialoguing. It's about intimacy. All of us have experienced great friendships and conversation with people, hopefully. You've experienced a form of intimacy that wasn't sexual, but was healthy and good and right? And for the church to compartmentalize itself only in marriages, for example, and only in families where where we only attend to our own, you know, people, our own stuff and what's going on, and don't look out at the singles in our group and, and, and our young people and our old people and everybody in between to think of them as our family, then of course it doesn't seem possible for anybody to come in here with some sort of same sex orientation and live a celibate life. It is dead on arrival. And so there's a big call here for the church to, re- and to really begin opening it in its arms. And as I say that, I'm not, again, not, not targeting Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. I'm just saying in general, um, I'm guilty of this. And it's hard because I have four kids that are demanding. And when there's a bit of time, I want to use that selfishly. I don't want to invite my single friends over to come have dinner. Or I don't want to go and do, I want to do what I want to do, um, which is go hide in the bathroom and just be really still. <laughs> you know, that, and nobody's going to find me. But um, we, we have to begin thinking about family in a completely different way. And we have to begin believing that, that the statement, sex is where true intimacy is found, is false. It certainly is intimacy in a very powerful form of it, in a special form of it. Uh, but it is not the only place to find intimacy. Um, and as I begin to really reflect over that, um, I just, boy, the, you know, the burdens we put on our spouses, if that's the only place where we're finding intimacy, or, or the places where when that's not going too well, um, I mean, we're just on islands here. And so there's, there's a call as a family to really begin spreading that intimacy out in healthy ways and figuring out what that looks like appropriately as we hug each other, you know? Um, if you have same-sex uh, attracted friends... Um, At least mine, like, there are these long, awkward hugs that they give. And I never understood why. Um, One in particular, every time I would see him, uh, I mean, probably a good two-minute hug. (laughs) And you're just kind of like, okay. (laughs) But then I really began to understand, oh, he hasn't, nobody's touched him in 30 days. Do you know what that's like? I don't. I don't. And praise the Lord. But I, in the sense of like, that's not, I mean, like, I don't know what that would be like, but now I'm aware of it. And like, man, let's do this, you know, and this is okay. And that maybe is the wrong word to say, but I'm just like, let's. <laughs> how do I become more open to that? Um, because other people have those needs, and they do that appropriately, and like, there's not like, I, I, you know, please hear what, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you know we need to start landing kisses on everybody we see here. But there's a there's an ethic, there's an appropriate way to begin sharing life with others that offers that intimacy. And you know, the real way that you figure this out is to actually have homosexual friends or same-sex attracted friends who would tell you what this is like. And that's probably another big issue with the church and us and me, and is we just don't have those friends. We don't know what this is like or we're always doing battle with a family member, or there's not like this ability to engage. And, you know, I'm not saying this is, I'm not, it's not a guilt trip. Don't hear what I'm not saying either there as well. But that's just a part of it. Uh, there's true intimacy to be found in other relationships. Because we are not our own and we have been bought with a price, Wesley says that we are not guaranteed sexual fulfillment. What's happened today for the first time ever is we, as a society, have looked at our sexuality to tell us who we are, and and we have built a life around that. Some of the factors involved, involved is the value we have put on sexual experiences today. He says, Being sexually active is the way to be most alive, a culture says. To be fully, truly, beautiful, beautifully human, a chorus of influential voices says. And to deprive anyone of sexual experiences is to deprive them then of life and joy and happiness. But this has never been true for the Christian. And it's sort of at this point where I want to stop as a married person and say, let's talk about this fulfillment language. Um, Let's talk about the married. The only people that are saying or thinking that sexuality, uh, acts of sex are fulfilling, are those who haven't had sex and those who are single. There isn't, like, sex is not the end, Right? It is it is it is pointing us to something else, and there is a big misunderstanding here that somehow if I'm if I find the right person, right, and, and somehow if if um, you know if I'm just if I can just have what I want, then I will find fulfillment in this act, and that's no different than saying I'm going to find fulfillment in X, whatever the idol is, right, or whatever the the, the good thing that God has made that we've elevated. Um, you know, I have permission to say this, but like my wife and I, we have like the best marriage, I would say, you know, like we have a great marriage. Um, but like, <laughs> you know, there's no like sexual fulfillment here in the sense that this sort of, um, you know. I, I think at this point in time, we could we could probably begin entertaining the idea, if I want to say this out loud, of like, hey, you know, like, it's great. It's great, but it's not it's not everything. There's so much more to it than 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 that. And as an 18-year-old or 19 or 20-year-old, yeah, try to tell me that. Like, um, you know, like the end-all, be-all of life was on the honeymoon, and you know, and and if you reflect on your honeymoon, for a lot of people, there were tears on the honeymoon. You know, it was not a happy experience. And as I, you know, even as as we, you know, got rid of our, got 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 rid of, exited our honeymoon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was great. you know, but are anybody's expectations fulfilled? Let's just put it that way. You know, no, like there's a longing there of this is not doing what I thought it would do. And now you have the situation if we come outside the church, we're like, of course people are going to get divorced. Because if we're, if we're already believing that the apex of life and that all, you know, all that sexuality is, is, is really that that is where life is happening. If that's what we're telling people, if you're buying that, that beauty and that all these things is going to fulfill you, when you show up in your, you know, on your wedding night or in your marriage and it begins to not be that, after six months or whatever it is, you, why would you hang around? And I get it. I get why people are leaving. Because they're basing their whole premise on marriage in the first place on a lie. Marriage is not a right it's not even a privilege. It is a social responsibility. It is a calling to bring in the next generation. Was I thinking about that on my honeymoon? Absolutely not. <laughs> but I wish I was. You know, um, there's so much about how we have overvalued sex in our society and our culture, and we've done it by, by elevating marriage, we've done it by elevating that particular relationship and what it means to be married uh, in, in the honeymoon night so much that it has caused us to not be able to look at homosexuality and all that that topic is demanding in a very appropriate biblical way because we're too wrapped up in our own idolatry. <laughs> we are too wrapped up in our own idolatry. You know, like, this is my precious over here. I, I don't want to give it up, so I'm going to tell that person to give it up. That is what is happening today. Okay, I'm ranting. Let's move on. Uh, there's a lovely book called Sexuality and Holy Longing by Lisa McMinn. And she um, has this uh, interesting bit about singles and uh, marrieds. Because oftentimes in our elevation of, of sex, of sex uh, and, which comes with it, the elevation of marriage itself, um, we leave out the whole single crowd. Um, and, and, and the singles themselves feel like there's something wrong with them if they're not married. They feel like they're looked down upon. And all the church really has to do to offer them is sort of, well, here's Wednesday night, singles night. Well, isn't that a lot of fun to go to. Um, <laughs> There are people in our church who are divorced. There are people in our church who are widows. There are people in our church who want to be married and are heterosexual but aren't getting married. It's a hard, hard thing to talk about. All of this includes them too. And so, as we begin to sort of disarm here a little bit and begin to kind of come off of the idol of marriage itself and sexuality and, and, and all things that are sexual. Um, she, she introduces these two terms that I thought were so helpful about how we as a collective whole get to go about in our own specific ways and communicate uh, the wonder and the grace and the mercy of God throughout his kingdom and she calls them the inclusive and exclusive love of God um, And what she means by that is that singles demonstrate and have a ministry of inclusive love um, and that is a love to everyone you know, this is the being able to bounce around to three or four different Super Bowl parties. This is, you know, being able to wait out any kind of plans to see if better plans come along, and then staying out till three in the morning to go. Like, you get to do that. And it was one of the best parts uh, that, that I feel like I I, that I missed the most. Um, and in doing that, do you not realize that you are actually getting to demonstrate the inclusive love of God for the kingdom? And that, that being single in that way is wonderful. Not to mention that Paul basically tells... Uh, us in 1 Corinthians 7 that being single is actually better than being married. We've neglected those texts, but um, that's a wonderful, wonderful gift that God has given you for the kingdom. The exclusive love would be the marrieds, which is just is what it says. There is an, an elected you know, attention given to people. So while I can't bounce around the three or four wedding part, or uh, Super Bowl parties, I've been called to a wife and that's where the exclusive love is directed and to a family. So I can't stay up till two. Uh, i got to be in bed because I've got to get up and get these kids going. But my call there is exclusive. And that, too, represents the exclusive elective love of God as well. And so we both do this together. It isn't an either, either, or. And we need to begin to begin celebrating that and having that in our um, paradigm for for doing life together. Uh, suffering, endurance, as a participation in the sufferings of Christ. Wesley adds, in light of this, my objection that abstaining from homosexual sex will be too difficult... Doesn't seem as strong or compelling as it once did. Many of us ask, how can we ask someone who is born with same sex attractions and not act on it to be celibate? And Wesley's answer is essentially, this is the cost of anyone who chooses to follow Jesus. What does Jesus say in Mark 8 34? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Wesley sees his sexual orientation not as a place to find his identity, but as his cross to bear. And I would just say that we want to tell people like this generally speaking, that they're not allowed in the church. I'll allow that man to pastor me any day of the week. And I need to hear his voice. But all Christians, as he said, experience this in one sense. As a heterosexual, I am called to not have sex until I get married. There are boundaries put around even my own sexuality, even more so to this day. Now I'm called to just one spouse. And as I mentioned earlier, some of us are not getting married. Do we have the right to have sex because we desire it? We don't. Pastors everywhere have lots of women in their churches who are not getting married, as we talked about, and, and men as well. Um, and there has to be something better than just, you know, I'm sorry. There has to be a community or an environment there um, that welcomes that in, and that community and that environment, according to Wesley Hill, is an environment defined by suffering. And so I would say the biggest wall for our LGBTQ people in buying Our script, which is a call for them to suffer, as we said earlier, is that they see zero suffering going on in our lives externally. Now, look, I I know many of you in this room, I know that suffering is a pleasant in here. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This is a general statement um, about what is seen in the church. Um, But I have to begin to wonder, what am I giving up um, as I call and ask somebody else to give up something as well? The argument of denying someone who is born with homosexual attractions the right to explore those desires seems harsh and cold at first. But to the Christian, it's not or shouldn't be. The change hurts. We call this sanctification. Hill uses this illustration. From God's perspective, our homoerotic inclinations are like the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst. Yet when God begins to try to change the craving and give us the living water that will ultimately quench our thirst, we scream in pain, protesting that we were made for salt— The change hurts. We groan in frustration because of our fidelity to the gospel's call. And that we may miss out. And this is the best part. We may miss out in the short run on on lives of personal fulfillment and sexual satisfaction. And in the long run, the cruelest thing that God could do would be, excuse me, the cruelest thing that God could do would be to leave us alone with our desires to spare us the affliction of his refining care. So it is for all Christians who take up their cross and follow Jesus. This is Hill's argument: a celibate Christian who has a homosexual orientation. Um, this leads us to what the what, what the church what's the church to do? And seeing that it is eight thirty-six, um, we'll stop there because I'm sure a lot of us will come up in Q and A. And I would just like to take a, a, a moment to just offer the, the floor to questions. This is a lot. Um, I, I skipped a lot of stuff because it just goes on for.